Would you pray with me? Reveal, O God, your wonder to our eyes. Open our hearts to Christ's love. Disperse from our minds any darkness and fill our lives with your light. Protect us, O God, from thoughts without action. Guard us from words without life. Grant us wisdom to walk in your ways and open us always to the guiding of your spirit. Amen. The story of Jesus calling the first disciples on the shore of Galilee has been a scripture that has resonated with me personally since I left for seminary. Jesus calls Simon and Andrew and then James and John to follow as disciples. They left a family business and went from working with their fathers to following Jesus. They went to become disciples who, of Jesus who would then bear witness to God's grace and God's love, modeling the journey of faith for those who they encountered. The story resonates for me because my own journal journey parallels this story. When I left to go to seminary, I left my family's business. I went from working with my own father to one week later studying Hebrew, studying the Hebrew Bible. I left working with customers, purchasing equipment, managing inventory to study scripture, to practice preaching, and to learn the variety of arts of being a pastor. Now, when I read this scripture, I don't read that the disciples leave their fathers. I read that the fathers send their children to devote themselves to being disciples. In my own life, my father was supportive and enthusiastic, as was my mother, when I left to go to seminary. We often emphasize in the scripture how the disciples immediately drop these nets and follow Jesus. And to some of us, sometimes it even seems a bit surprising. We see at the time of, of Jesus, at the time of this scripture, it would have been an honor, a privilege, to have been called to follow and learn from a rabbi, a teacher. Now, the disciples would have had families who took pride in this, who would have sent them enthusiastically to go and follow this teacher. The disciples, too, would have been ready. They would have been prepared for this moment had it ever had the opportunity to present themselves. You see, they had been prepared to be a part of a vision larger than their own. With our 21st century eyes, the scripture sounds like an impulsive, perhaps uninformed decision. But you see, the disciples would have been prepared for this moment long ago. The immediacy could actually reflect on a commitment to a possibility, to an opportunity that they never thought would actually happen. At least Jewish tradition hints at such. There's a, a Jewish document called the Mishnah. 
It is a written collection of oral teachings of rabbis that was written about the second century CE, but was teachings gleaned from, from the teachers throughout several centuries. And in it is a description of the education of Jewish children. From an early age, children would learn the scriptures and the ways of living them out. They would commit whole passages to memory. Probably this would have happened either at the synagogue or at a school run by the synagogue. And so in Capernaum, a small city where the disciples are from, these disciples, this opportunity would have been offered to the children of their city, and the disciples then would likely have received such an education. The teachers would model how to live their trust in God, founded in this understanding of Scripture. And at a certain point, most would reach an adequate place in their learning and then turn their attention to the work of the family. Later in their childhood years, they would tradition to transition to adulthood, and few students would ever actually reach the kind of proficiency that would allow for an opportunity to seek to follow a teacher or a rabbi. Those that did, however, would travel following the teacher, would learn from them, would imitate them, and these then would go on and teach and model the faith that they learned from their teacher to others. So when Jesus says, follow me, I will make you fish for other people, the disciples knew that what was presented before them was a special opportunity. So they followed. The end of the story says where they followed. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. This particular Jesus this particular teacher, excuse me, this one called Jesus, began his own ministry before even calling these disciples right at the beginning of this morning's scripture by saying, change your hearts and lives. The kingdom of heaven draws near. The language of the scripture here is evocative of something that God is doing what we translate to mean change your hearts and lives, or as it's traditionally translated as repent, it, it has a sense of, a, of an inner transformation with outward consequences. It has the sense of something that we participate in that, that is more than what we just do on our own, by ourselves. It, it points to God's activity in this large, big, broad way, and yet still meets us personally where we are. Now, the whole idea of changing lives or undergoing personal transformation can seem hard to hold on to, at least it does to me. It can feel abstract. It requires one to, to be able to have a, a bigger vision, a bigger picture. 
It needs a bigger view. There's a leadership guru in the business world named Ronald Heifetz who says that if one is seeking a broader understanding, then they need to get up on the balcony. He uses the metaphor of a balcony where from that vantage point, one can see what is happening down on the floor better than if one were actually standing on the floor. And it's true, both metaphorically and literally. When I was in seminary, I sat in the balcony during chapel services. Yes, I was a balcony dweller. Chapel was Monday through Friday for about 30 minutes just before lunchtime. I sat in the balcony unless I was singing with the choir. I started sitting in the balcony because of a friend who wanted to sit up there. So I and two other friends followed him up, and it was empty. It became our spot. The first pew in the front of the balcony, right in the center. So we knew that after class, we would find each other right there. It was a different perspective than being on the main floor of the chapel. From the balcony, we could see the musicians playing clearly. The organist was hidden behind the pulpit. It was hard to see from the floor, but from up on the balcony, you could see the organist dance across the console, legs pushing the pedals. I remember seeing groups form from individuals. As people went to the same place each day for worship, they began to know the people around them in the pew in front or behind or beside, and the distance between individuals suddenly shrank as they formed their own friendships and became groups. And while now my view in worship is from the front, from the pulpit most of the time, it's an awfully nice vantage point to see all of you. But I do still go up to the balcony from time to time, mostly to pray, mostly to pray for the church, for you. It happens a little bit less from the balcony in the winter because it's a bit cold in here during the week. Nevertheless, I do like to look out over the empty pews knowing where you will be on Sunday morning. A balcony view can be helpful if we're thinking about discipleship. A balcony view for Presbyterians shows how God is calling all of us to a life of discipleship, a life like these disciples, that we, having followed Christ, to end up teaching others and modeling for others the Christian faith. Now, what I love about the Presbyterian Church and the call to ministry is that in many ways our language suggests how pastors are really just another disciple, that someone in my position is really one of you. Our language around ordination often describes pastors as being called from the pews, being called from the same kinds of seats 
where you all are. And what I love about that is that it means that we all have ministries, even when they are distinct from one another, that are shared, that are cooperative. Now, pastors, or theologically speaking, ministers of word and sacrament are sometimes called teaching elders in our tradition. And the leadership, the church, on our church board that serves uh, as what we call the session are called ruling elders. So our session ruling elders, our pastor teaching elders, and when we read the liturgy of ordination for teaching and ruling elders, though it's different, it's not much different. The prayers majority of the questions of commitment, the themes are all largely the same. What they asked of me when I was committing to ordained ministry is the same as what we ask those who are called to be elders in this church. There's a couple of different questions, but 14 of them are the same. It's a lot of questions. What is different, though, is what role we are committing to. The difference is that Presbyterian pastors are asked to set apart their time and their gifts to leading worship, to teaching scripture, to leading ministries of compassion among one another in the congregation and then out in our community, our neighborhood, our city. But regardless of our roles, We say that we are in this together. From the balcony, a person can see our challenges from a different perspective. People can see what we know in a new way, a refreshing way, a different way, as our scripture might suggest this morning, a transformed way. And whether we like it or not, this is often the business that Jesus is in. The words that Jesus uses has this sense of saying, be of a new mind. You need to wrap your mind around this. Open to perspectives that you've not yet considered or explored. Jesus has a purpose in in this kind of language, which is to see that the purpose of God is near The kingdom of heaven, Jesus says, is near. Now what this means for the 21st century might require a balcony view of ancient history of two tribes of Israel. These are the two tribes that Jesus names, Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew's gospel is always going back to quote Hebrew scriptures And here, the Gospel of Matthew is referencing Isaiah. The people who have walked in darkness have seen a great light. And there's a wonderful part that the prophet Isaiah says that Matthew leaves out, though. Isaiah says, there will be no gloom for those who were in anguish. What an incredible promise that is. 
You see, the prophet Isaiah speaks of Nebulon and Zebulun and Nephtali because when Assyrian armies invaded Israel in roughly 700 BCE, these two tribes were the first to face the terrible armies. And these, the people of these two regions would have suffered the violence and loss that war brings. The people, the communities, the places were broken. And these regions, these people, would have been neighbors to those who lived in Capernaum, just down the road to the west and just up the river to the north. Capernaum, that place where Jesus meets the disciples on the beach, and Zebulun and Naphtali are where Jesus announces change and salvation and transformation and hope and calls us to wrap our minds around it. The kingdom of heaven will start in places that are broken that are vulnerable, they have uncertainty, where the people have doubts and might be unsure. It starts in those places in our own lives, too, where we ache from grief and loss, where we face parts of our lives that seem like they're beyond repair, where we feel vulnerable or uncomfortable or uncertain. This is where God begins in us. Jesus transforms the notion of what it means to be a disciple. What we do as people of faith is consider how God sees the world, and it means that we need to wrap our minds around God, starting with our own vulnerable places. It means we listen for God's wisdom. We ask questions about where God might be in an experience, an event, in a place, in a people. We invite neighbors and our friends because our faith is stronger when it's lived with one another. We fish for people even though we're not sure how. We're not sure we want to use nets anyway. And even when we're not sure, it's Jesus who's guiding us. In our lives in the church, we are disciples walking the way of Christ together. Not perfect, sometimes broken, often hurting, sometimes anxious, and sometimes vulnerable. But through it all, our lives are a part of God. And our commitment is to follow Jesus faithfully. In these lives we live as disciples, as people of faith, we seek to wrap our minds around what this means for us and for our community. We wrap our minds around what God is creating and, and loving among us, especially with the parts that we set aside because we're not sure about them. That, it seems, is where God starts. 
That is where God reaches out and says, Come, follow me. I have plans for you. I have plans for the people you care about. So Jesus is saying to these disciples on the shore, to you and I, follow me. Let's go meet some people. I am doing something in your life that you might just want to share. May all of our lives and all of our relationships point to the one who gives us life in Christ our Lord. Amen.